All right, Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13. And uh, let's look here for a few moments uh, tonight. I'm, uh, I'm going to be quite honest with you as we move through this text. Um, uh, <clears throat> my goal is to finish this chapter, but I'm not quite sure. Uh, just again, because the content, what we have to unwrap in this chapter. As we've been moving through the minor prophets, it's been extremely interesting as we've gone through and seen. But Zechariah, to me, kind of tops them all because of, uh, especially these latter chapters, in, in the fact that the, the close of Israel's history, as we would know it, uh, is, is abounding. It's coming. And then we're going to see the transfer of, uh, of power, might, and uh, uh, all, all the roles that what we look forward to in our future, our future, is on display in this, in this little book. Zechariah, to me, is one of the more amazing of the minor prophets to give to us those things. And uh, we're going to look at something as well tonight. We'll get there in a moment. Uh, that is somewhat controversial within this text, all right? And uh, as we look at it, I'll point it out to you as well. So there's nine verses. We're going to read the verses. Let me just remind you of something else before we read uh, tonight. <clears throat> that the first eight chapters of Zechariah uh, dealt with the day in which he lived, Zechariah lived, all right? And so we had uh, the, the Medes and the Persians, they were in uh, rule at that time. And then when we get to chapter 9, chapter 9 through 14 are all future for Zechariah. And, no, and that's what we're in the middle of right now, all right? Uh, and for the nation of Israel. More specifically, chapter 9 and 10, it dealt with the Grecian Empire, right? Okay, he's living in the Medo-Persian Empire. Next comes the Grecian Empire under a great king known as Alexander the Great. All right, we remember him from history. Following him, of course, was the Roman Empire. And we'll see that uh, in, or we've seen that rather in chapter number 11. That was the time frame of all this is happening. Now, what we have dealt with so far in chapter 12 and what we're going to deal with in 13 and in 14 are all the last days of the national history of Israel. It's coming to a close. Now, we know from recent history, when I say recent history, I mean in the previous century, in the, ninth, uh, in the, in the 20th century, that Israel became a state, recognized state. Things begin to move very rapidly when it comes to these things that we're looking at here. That's why this. That's why Zechariah makes this even more vivid. It's, it's, it's a stronger, stronger evidence of everything that God has told us in this wonderful book is coming true. It's amazing. So here's what we're going to do tonight. Chapter 13, we're going to read the whole chapter, all right? It's just nine verses. Take us just a couple minutes. Then we're going to start looking at it closely. And it is closely related to chapter 12. And if you remember, in chapter 12, we looked at a couple things. One was the siege of Jerusalem. There was a great battle that was coming to Jerusalem. That's coming in the future. In fact, that has started on a number of occasions in recent history as well. And then just, you know, not more than a couple months ago, uh, there was a, that, that attack by Hamas and, and the Palestinians on the southern part of Israel. Well, what, what were they planning? What were they going to do? They were, everybody wants to go to Jerusalem. Everybody wants to capture Jerusalem. 
And they're not going to. They're not going to be successful. We know that from Scripture. They're God's people. And they're going to continue to be God's people. And they're not going to be successful in overtaking. The attempted siege of Jerusalem has come. But what the whole process, God has something in mind. He has a purpose and a plan in mind for his own people, for the nation of Israel. And that is, he wants them to to understand who he is and who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. He was rejected in the past, but he is going. They are going to be converted, okay, into understanding and believing that Jesus is the Messiah. That is going to happen. So when I when I use that term conversion, I don't do not necessarily mean salvation by grace through faith like we do. I mean a conversion in their belief system, in that they will recognize, you know what, Jesus is that Messiah. Our, 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 our ancestors missed it, all right? They missed it. Now we get to reap the benefits of having Jesus as the Messiah. Some are going to see that. But may I say this as well? The minority of Israel will see that. And we're going to notice that here in the text as well. All right, let's read. Let's read about it, and then we'll come back and notice a couple of things. Watch this, verse number one. The Bible says, in that day... There shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, Then his father and his mother that begat him shall say to him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. Ouch. Verse 4. It shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed, every one of his vision, when he hath prophesied. Neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive, But he shall say, I am no prophet. I am an husbandman. For man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that, that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. Wow. Uh, I love that last verse especially. I don't know if you recognize that, but that number of those who believe actually will be the remnant is, is reduced considerably in that text. Okay, there. But let's go back for a moment. I want to show you a couple of things tonight from this passage of Scripture and then, uh, and then I want to try my best to leave you hanging. All right? I'm going to leave you hanging so you'll come back next week. All right? 
All right, anyway. Uh, uh, just kidding about that. I want to, I want to get through that. Let's, let's go back, if you would, please. And, and I want you to notice, this is what we're looking at, the cleansing of the nation. And when I say cleansing of the nation, I mean the people and the land itself. Both of them, are going to, there's going to be a period of time in which there will be a cleansing. The people are going to be cleansed from their sin. Praise the Lord for that. I'm glad that the Lord would cleanse us from our sin, aren't you? I mean, we, when we ask Him, He forgives uh, we have that, 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 that uh, flow of blood, the precious blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses from all sin. It, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? And, and we have that cleansing. Not only is there cleansing for the people, but also for the land. God has a process of cleansing that it, it takes us back historically uh, through uh, the, the law of a cleansing of the land, a cleansing of the, the physical land, the earth, all right, and also a cleansing of the people. It was necessary in order for God to manifest himself and do the things that God wants to do with the nation of Israel and the entire world for that matter. So this is a process that must happen. Now, may I remind everyone that this earth right now currently is cursed. The earth is cursed from Genesis 3. We learn that the earth is cursed because of sin. But there's coming a day in which this earth will be renovated by fire. It's going to be overcome by fire. And, and, and the elements, the Bible says that the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The judgment of God is going to come upon the land. And this land, this, as we know it, the entire earth is going to be consumed, going to be judged, going to be purified, going to be cleansed. And God will then set up the new heaven and the new earth. That will be an amazing time. Now, now, there's a lot of details in that that we're, we just don't know about. God hasn't revealed those things to us, but that's okay. If we learn the value of trusting God and trusting what He says in His Word, then we have absolutely nothing to worry about. Amen? All right. So if we don't have our trust in Him and our faith is, you know, is minuscule then, or, or, or non-existent, then we've got a few things to worry about. So, let, we don't need to worry about that, okay? However, I'm just telling you what we find in Scripture and what these men have written, what God has revealed to us, all right? So, so how does this happen? Look with me, if you would, at verse 1. In verse 1 through 6, 1 through 6 talks about the removing of the sin. 1 through 6 talks about the removing of the sin. Let's go back and watch this carefully, if you would. Verse number 1, in that day... And, and Zechariah uses that phrase a lot in chapter 12 and 13. In that day. What day? There's coming a day. It's a future day. Future day for Zechariah. In fact, it's a future day for you and I as well. And here, again, verse 1, he's talking about a future day even for us. Okay? While we can use this by application, he is specifically talking about the nation of Israel, the house of David, and, uh, and, and the Jewish uh, race, the Jewish people. Watch what he says. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for two things. One, sin and for uncleanness. There is the, 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 the need for a cleansing. There's a need for sin to be dealt with. And God has done that throughout the ages of time. He's did that. He did that for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He's done that for man, mankind all throughout the history of mankind. Thank God he's done that for you and I. I'm grateful for the fact that the people's guilt of sin 
is going to be clean. Now, this is, in fact, very different from what we learn in the, the, the tabernacle and the, the, the wilderness when Moses built the tabernacle and the Levites and, and they handled the structure and all that. If you'll recall, one of the pieces of furniture was called the brazen laver. And that brazen laver was that, that huge bowl made of brass and in it was water. And after they would conduct the sacrifice on the altar, uh, uh, the burnt sacrifice on that, that altar of, of sacrifice there, they would go to that laver and they would wash themselves. The priest would have to cleanse himself before he would go any further. One of the things, however, with that, and it was symbolic, there was a lot of symbolism at because Jesus, we know, is, the, is the, uh, the, the Word, okay? And we're washed by the water of the Word, all right? We're cleansed, uh, and, and, and also the blood. All of those things work together simultaneously whenever we trust Jesus and we are cleansed from our sin. Here's the thing about the laver. You know what happens after you use water? It gets dirty, right? Yeah, it gets dirty. That laver, and, and they would have to replenish the water because they would use water out of that laver, right? All right, is everybody with me? So you use, if you have just a bowl of water, back in the day they didn't have the nice, you know, go up to, turn the spigot on and out comes water. They didn't have that. You know, they, they'd have the, a bowl, a basin. They'd pour the water out of the pitcher into that bowl, and then they would wash their face and shave and, you know, and all that stuff. All right. They'd do all that out of that bowl. But that bowl would get dirty, but you would also have to replenish it with clean water. All right. Is everybody with me now? All right. That is not what he's talking about here because he uses a different term. He uses the word fountain. The fountain here. Is, is, is different. There's a constant flow uh, that is coming from that fountain. I, I think of it in this way. There's a songwriter that put it like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood. What happens? Lose all. Their guilty stains. Perhaps he got that song from this portion of Scripture. Irregardless what is Zechariah saying here. Hey, listen, there's coming a day. And he was talking about his future. And there was that day when Jesus died upon the cross. The fountain of his blood, it flowed from his body. And what did that do for you and I? It, it caused us to be able to be cleansed from all of our sin and, and all of the guilt of sin. We will be clean coming to that blood, that fountain of blood. What God provides through the cleansing agent of His blood, He takes care of the sin and the uncleanness that is produced by sin. Now, what Zechariah is talking about, he's not talking about ceremonial law. He's talking about moral law. People morally sin. They, they become immoral with that. Ceremonially, yes, there are things that they do wrong and people do wrong and, and sin when it comes to that aspect of it. But what he is uh, speaking of here specifically is that, that moral sin. But let me say this. The blood of Jesus, thank God for this, the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin, all 
types of sin, whether it is a ceremonial sin or a moral sin. That doesn't matter. The decay of sin is what His blood and that fountain takes care of. I'm grateful for that. What a blessing it is to know that. The most prominent sinful problem that Israel had was idolatry. That was the biggest thing. Do you think that God on purpose said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me? Makes sense, doesn't it? Did he say on purpose the first two commandments in, was in relation to the fact that he was the only God and there was none else and, and, and that there should be no graven images uh, at all that was constructed uh, in, uh, in order to worship opposed from or opposite of or apart from the God that created the heavens and the God that created them. He did and said all that on purpose. So here's, here's the situation. That fountain that he speaks of in verse number 1 will take care of all of the idolatry of Israel as well. But God is going to go a step further. Yes, while the people's guilt of sin, they'll be clean as a result of that fountain. There, there's, uh, there, there's more to it. Let's look at it in verse number 2, if you would. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts. And remember, the Lord of hosts is the one who is the Lord over all. Over all, over anything, over everything. He says that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land. That there be no more remembered. And, I, and also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to pass out of the land. So the first thing he deals with is the idols. Is that important? Oh, absolutely it's important. What do we find Israel doing throughout their entire history whenever they would, you know, they'd feel good about themselves and all that? In fact, it started in Mount Sinai when Moses was atop Mount Sinai and he delayed his coming. The Lord kept him up there for a little while. And, you know, Aaron took all the gold from everybody and they put it in a big old pot. And, and then the, the golden calf was, you know, mysteriously. Aaron said, I don't know what happened. We just put all the gold in there. What you doing putting all the gold in there to begin with? Why are you gathering all the gold from all the people to begin with? You don't need to do that. It just mysteriously popped out. And here it was, Moses. I don't know what happened. Got one word for that. Liar. He just lied about it. He did. I, I, I just, you, you read the text, okay? He lied about it. That's where it started. For Israel. And it continued on and on and on. You know what? There, there are multiple idols even today that people worship. But here's one of the things that God said he's going to do. He says, I'm going to cut their name off. And here's what that means. He says, I'm going to take it to the point where they will, not, they will have zero authority. Zero influence. When their name is remembered no more, means that all of their authority, all of their power, all of the influence that they ever had is going to be completely annihilated. Now, that, that's pretty awesome. In the fact that God will do that, because He said He would. The Lord of hosts said, I am going to take all the idols, and you will not be able to remember them anymore. Wouldn't that be a blessing today? You know what, I, I do firmly believe this, that, that many people, even maybe some sitting in here today, we got a little idol going on, a little idolatry. 
we put something ahead of God we shouldn't put? He's supposed to be first, isn't he? And if God is first, then nothing else could possibly be an idol. But when we put something else ahead of God, we place that in, put that in his place, that becomes an idol to us, and thus idolatry begins to develop. But notice something else that he said in the text. Not only is he going to cut off the idols, but he said, I'm going to cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. Whoa. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What was Zechariah? What was he? Somebody said it. He was a prophet. Is he talking about Zechariah? No, 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 no. He's not talking. Here's a qualifying statement. The unclean spirits qualifies these prophets to be unreliable, ungodly, unfit to be a part of what God has instituted. These actually are false prophets. Did not Jesus say that in the day before his coming that there would be many antichrists? Many false prophets? Yeah, yeah, many false. Hey, we've got them. We, we, they're around. False prophets are everywhere around us. It does not take long. You can ride down the road from here to Richmond. You can see it on the billboard. I've seen it going down Chippenham. I've seen it going, uh, where at? Hull Street? Billboard's there. Turn, turn on, uh, if you turn on the TV, you see it on there. The radio, you see it on there. You see it on Facebook. You see it on any kind of media outlet there is. There's false prophets everywhere. But here's what he said he's going to do. He said, I'm going to cut them off. Because they're unclean. They're unclean. Now, when he speaks of that, the, again, cutting them off, uh, that they'll be not remembered anymore, no authority. And that also is referring to the false prophets they're not going to be remembered anymore they're not going to have any authority they're not going to have any influences as well they will they will stop actually the people will stop acknowledging that they even exist and they will make a way for them to return this is what God's doing he's making a way for the people to return to true worship Here's a second thought, okay, not only the people's guilt of sin, that'll be clean, but the prophet's fraud will cease. Now we started on the prophets, let me, let me finish a little bit. These, these false prophets, they will no longer have the ability or the authority to lead people astray anymore. God's going to take care of them. The use of the prophets will not be needed anymore. Why? Why will the need of prophet, the prophets not be needed? Well, why did we have the prophets to begin with? Because they didn't have this. They did not have the written word. They did not have the completed revelation. And so God used the prophets in order to speak to the people. I'm thankful that we have this now, the word of God now, whereby we have what God wants us to have, a completed revelation. And that is also a huge, huge blessing. Now, Something interesting about the term unclean spirit. Now, we find it in the New Testament on several occasions, but this actually is the only time it's mentioned in the Old Testament, the unclean spirit. 
So what does that mean? Now, again, it's, it's moved, uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's mentioned in the New Testament. Again, several times, only time in the Old Testament. So what does that mean? It means that the, the energy, the energy that is given to these prophets comes by and through an unclean spirit. The unclean spirit is demonic. The unclean spirit is from the power of Satan, and that must be stopped at all costs. All evil, all evil activity that these prophets are involved with through the unclean spirit is demonic in its very nature and base. And God says, I've got to get rid of this. Why? Because the end of Israel's history, as we know it, it's, it's coming. The beast, the false prophet, the man of sin are all going to be involved in trying to capture the hearts of the people. We know that, right? We can read about that in the book of the Revelation. Paul mentions it in Thessalonians. We have that mentioned several times in the, even in the New Testament. But the beast, the false prophet, the man of sin, the Antichrist, they are all part of the workings of Satan and his demonic powers and activity on the earth infiltrating into mankind. And as that happens and develops, the hearts of the people are going to melt and migrate to those men. Those false, that false prophet, that beast, that, that antichrist, that man of sin, all of them together. To remove the false prophet is going to take some drastic measures and God is certainly willing to do that. Wow. So what does he do? <laughs> Watch what he happens in verse 3. All right, so he says, he's promising in verse 2 that he's going to do that. He's, they're not going to be remembered. I will cause the prophets and unclean spirits to pass out of the land. Verse 3, and it will come to pass that when any shall prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him will say unto him, Thou shalt not live. You're going to kill him. Well, that's kind of, kind of brutal, isn't it? No, no, hang on. For thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his, his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. Now we can go back to the Old Testament law in the book of Leviticus and we discover that if their person prophesied falsely, the family initiated the, initiated the stoning. And they would stone them to death for telling false prophecies. That was kind of brutal. Well, hey, hey, and we know that this is not an old, te- uh, not a, a law from Leviticus because now it's different here. And they says that they will thrust them through. They will take a sharp instrument, maybe a dagger, maybe a sword. Doesn't matter what it is. But he says here, the mother, the father, and the mother that begat him, that gave him birth, his own parents will say, "You have lied. You have prophesied. You have caused so many people to go astray. Now you must die." And they will take the initial action and kill them whoa whoa uh, let me just say this here that, that sounds kind of brutal or maybe a fairy tale no God ain't playing he's already said he's already told him he said thou shalt have no other gods before me thou shalt have no graven images and Israel has done that and when the prophets when the false prophets lie about those things and deceive people you remember what Paul said in the book of Thessalonians? He said that there were coming a day in which people will be deceived. They were, they're going to believe the lie. 
We're in those days now. We've been talking about those signs, those signs of the times. We're in those days right now where people are believing the lie before they'll believe the truth. If they believe the truth more than they believe the lie, we wouldn't be able to find a seat tonight. I'm just saying. Sunday morning, we'd have to bring out more chairs. We had to pack them in here like sardines. All of us. I remember back in the day, we did, yeah, I mean, this, is, this is no joke. When, when we were in college, we had, we had to arrive at church two hours early just to get a seat on Sunday night. Whoa. Yeah. Where, where's, what hap- what's happening now? People are believing the lie. They're believing the deception before they're believing the truth. God says, I'm going to kill him. And he will do exactly that. <laughs> the next of kin is the one that would take the first steps in getting rid of the false prophets. Look at this in verse number 4. Verse 4. And it shall come to pass in that day, there it is again, that the prophets shall be ashamed every one of his vision. When he hath prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. Hmm. What is he saying here? Well, because there are some who will be thrust through and killed as a result of their lies, others are going to see it and they're going to be ashamed. Wait a minute. Maybe I should uh, think twice about telling this, uh, this falsehood. They're going to be ashamed. They'll find themselves in shame for their lies and for the hypocrisy. They will try their best to disclaim any connection whatsoever with those whom they've been associated with. In fact, they said, we're not wearing that, those kind of garments anymore because I don't want to be associated with them. All right? Is everybody, you understand what I'm saying? All right, listen. In those days, the prophets would wear a certain garment to, to be identified with as a prophet. And as a result of that, everybody would know when he walked in town, that's a prophet. And so here what's happening is they're, they're, they're wanting to rid themselves of any distinguishing factor. And so they, they remove those garments from them so they will not find any association with them at all. They're frauds. Hmm. They will do everything they possibly can to cover up the evil activity that they've been involved with. Anything and everything. Now, verse 5 and 6 is where it gets interesting. All right? Now, I've timed this out just perfectly. The Lord has helped me greatly. But I've timed this out just perfectly. The Lord's timed this out perfectly. I should say that. Now, most often, and I have thought this uh, and, 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 and in fact preached this from this passage of Scripture in the past. Especially when it comes to verse number 6. Let me mention this. Let's read, I want to read verse 5 and 6 together. Uh, in fact, actually, I need to go back. Because if you'll notice at the end of verse number 4, what is the punctuation mark there? Okay, so if it's a colon, that means the thought continues, correct? We're still in the same sentence. So let's go back and read verse number 4. Now, now, 
I, mind you, everything that I said about verse 4 is, is accurate and true because of what is within the context of Scripture. What are we talking about? We're talking about the prophets who are fraudulent. All of that's going to stop. All right? Now watch this. Let's go back. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed, every one of his vision, when he hath prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, I am no prophet, I am an husbandman, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. Stop. That's one sentence. Everybody with me? All right. So let's stay with the thought here. We do not want to do, I do not want to ever, 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 ever misinterpret or do damage to Scripture by any other means or way. So if this is a sentence, then we need to keep the same thought pattern in mind. Is everybody you with me? I'm not trying to give an English lesson here, okay? Because I'm very poor in English. However, I do have enough sense to see punctuation marks. And everybody in here has those, that sense too. All right? All right, so when he's talking in verse number 4 about the prophets in that day, they, they, they're going to they're gonna be ashamed and all that, that thought continues because that same prophet who's ashamed and, and who wants to get rid of the garments that everybody else sees him wearing and all that, he says this. He says this in verse 5. I am no prophet. He admits it. I am no prophet. I am a husbandman. What does a husbandman do? He's kind of like a gardener, all right? He's a gardener. He watches the, the vine and he, he, he makes sure that the grapes are, and the, the olives and all of that are cared for very carefully. He says, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. Wait a minute, what are you? Are you a prophet? Are you a gardener? Or, or do you watch cattle? Which one are you? Y'all with me? Now, if you read that very casually, it's very easily to, easy to get confused. I think this man is confused. Right? Does it make sense? Okay, he's ashamed. He's not wearing the priestly garment or the prophet's garments. He's, he's not associating himself with that. And then he says, I'm not a prophet. What are you then? I'm a husbandman. I've been taught to keep cattle. What are you? Are you a gardener or, or, or do you keep cows? Huh. Let me just remind everybody of something here. Even in the New Testament, when it comes to Jesus Christ, he did say, my father is the husbandman, didn't he? Okay, he did say that. Nowhere do we find that Jesus ever, or God, ever kept cattle. Right? Everybody with me? I want you to get this now. I'm going to leave you hanging here in just a minute. Um, he says also in the text, Jesus was never ashamed of what he did. You with me? At no time did Jesus ever say, I'm not a prophet. With me? Alright. So I'm laying a foundation here. Jesus never said I'm not a prophet. He never um, uh, never said uh, that he was uh, uh, or never worked with cattle. His father wasn't a, he wasn't a husband. He was father was the husband. Alright. Now what? Here's where we get here, here's where it gets a little sticky. 
verse 6. And one shall say unto him, Whoa, time out. Him who? Who's the him he's talking about? And one shall say unto him. Remember the context. Follow with me now. This is important. It's so important to understand this. Verse five, 4 and verse number 5 is talking about a prophet. A false prophet. A fraudulent prophet. One that has, is ashamed. One, he, he carries all these characteristics that he's not a prophet actually. All right. Now, verse 6. And one shall say unto him. One shall say unto him that is the fraudulent or the false prophet. You with me? Does this make sense from a contextual point of view? Does it make sense from the English point of view as we read our, our Bible? Okay? And one shall say, we don't know who that one is, he's not identified. But one shall say unto him, the one who we just talked about who's fraudulent. Watch this now. He says, ask a question. What are these wounds in thine hands? Okay. Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, I don't know about you, Brother Noble, but I've preached this passage of Scripture before in relation to Jesus Christ. And I have to stand before you tonight and say I was wrong. Because that's not Jesus. Jesus was never a fraudulent prophet. Never. If we look at this text very carefully, we discover that the one who's asked the question to the man, to the him, is the fraudulent prophet. So what is it about the wounds in the hands? Well, we know that Jesus, the Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The Bible talks about his hands being scarred. A wound is still open. Am I right? Okay. But then he says, I was, these, are, these are something that I got in the house of my friends. So Jesus was crucified among friends? He wasn't among friends. Now he came to his own and his own received him not. I get it. Now, let me, let me say this very carefully. We can't, we could, we could. If we stretch it, very long. We could stretch it and say, you know, we can apply this in certain areas in certain ways. But if we're looking accurately at proper interpretation within the context of Scripture, this is not Jesus Christ. Well, where did the wounds come from? How about being a false prophet? How about a manufactured wound? You know they do that in some countries. They manufacture the wounds, pretending that they're someone great, a false prophet. I find it very interesting. And, I, and again, I mean, I, I know that I don't remember if I've ever preached from that passage of Scripture to this congregation before, but I'm publicly saying. 
I was wrong in an interpretation of that because that's not Jesus. Now, again, by application. And, and I read a bunch of stuff. I spent all day today or most of the day today reading and trying to figure out because I said, Lord, wrong. Y'all ever done that before? I, and, 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 and I don't want to be wrong. But sometimes we, we miss things. But that is not talking about Jesus. Who is it talking about? Huh. There's somebody who pretends to be Christ. There's somebody who pretends to carry wounds. There's somebody who's going to pretend to be that one that everybody will look to and migrate to and, and flock to. But I'm telling you, he's a fraud. Now, what happens next, this is where I'm going to where kind, of, kind of leave you hanging here, okay? What happens next, while I've had to admit some things from verse 6. And all that is said prior has to deals with false prophets and so on. When we get to verse 7, it's not a false prophet. It is Jesus Christ himself. So what does he do? What does Jesus do? Israel is expecting something to happen. And what they're expecting to happen and what reality is may not necessarily be the same thing. So when Jesus comes back, he comes back and he does something spectacular. And he begins to open up the way for us to see inside of the, the you know, if we could see in the mind of God, we can't. But it's almost like he's opening it up so that we can see in the mind and what God is getting ready to do. And it starts in verse 7 of chapter 13. So, when we look at this text of Scripture, interesting. Because I read some guys today, they were very adamant about, That's Jesus! That's Jesus! When Jesus met with Thomas and the disciples in John chapter 21, I read it. He said to Thomas, he said, come hither. He didn't say, Jesus never said one word about a wound. He said, come, see the nail print in my hand. Come, bring your hand and, and thrust it in my side and it was not a wound. Let me remind everybody that a wound is still open. A nail print means that it is scarred over, completed, finished. Jesus don't have to die again. He is not dying now. It's done. It's done. But the very first word of verse number 7 says this, and i, I got to quit. The very first word says what? Awake. So hopefully, prayerfully, our eyes have been awakened 
to a simple truth sometimes gets misconstrued when we interpret and when we look at things in light of that. But next time, we'll finish out chapter 13 and get into 14. All right? And 14 is oh so amazing. Oh so amazing. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. Woo! <laughs> you know, we glory in that, right? The day of the Lord cometh. Now remember, in chapter 12 and 13, he keeps saying, in that day, in that day, in that day, in that day. Guess what? Chapter 14, behold, the day is here. Oh, that's exciting. We'll get into that, all right? I got to quit. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we love you so very, very much. Thank you for the, uh, the day. Thank you for the opportunity to share uh, these truths uh, from your word tonight from Zechariah. Uh, Lord, thank you for the attention everyone's given. I pray that your blessings now upon every heart. We love you, thank you, and praise you. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.